This is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime. Because this is hell. And today we will be talking about the great fortunes at universities and the great crime of structural racism in higher education. We are told that if you want to improve your opportunities, all you need is an education. And the more schooling you complete, the greater the likelihood you will achieve your life's goals. When an entire community is underserved, the recommended response is often, greater access to education will solve your problems. In prescribing such a solution, parents are often the ones who are held accountable for any shortcomings a student may face in their education. As we have a guest discuss in the past here on the show, this individualizes the responsibility for an education, putting all the burden on a parent without holding the system, structures, or educational institutions, institutions accountable. Let alone things like the shortcomings of American democracy or the political economy of capitalism or its latest version that has gutted public schools that is neoliberalism. But what if education isn't the cure-all that policymakers have made it out to be, that we hope it would be? What if more access to a better ed education does not result in the American dream? of high school graduation, going off to college, getting a job, falling in love, getting married, buying a house, and having kids. Sure, a college education works for white men, but does education pay off for everyone to the same extent? What if an education is a good investment if you are white and male, but not so much for everyone who ain't a white dude? And from my own personal experience as someone who is legally blind and lives with a disability, I can tell you a college education does not have the same financial value for me, even though I am, yes, a white dude. And I'm absolutely certain that depressed value would fall even further if I was still disabled, but not white or a man. What happens to education when it is made to only benefit certain people? What happens to democracy when such inequality in educational outcomes persists even when black college black student college enrollment and graduations are up. We'll try to figure all that out in a few minutes when we will have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Jasmine L. Harris, author of Black Women, Ivory Tower, Revealing the Lies of White Supremacy in American Education. Dr. Harris is Associate Professor of African American Studies and Coordinator of the African American Studies Program in the Department of Race, Ethnicity, and Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Texas, San Antonio. Jasmine's research and teaching focuses on the experiences of black people in predominantly white schools, specifically the social, physical, and economic impacts of their presence there. Her work centers on the academic experiences of underrepresented students and faculty, institutional racism and pedagogical innovations in teaching racism and privilege in higher education classrooms. She is committed to the culturally restorative power of research. Jasmine's writing has been published in The Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, Houston Chronicle, Boston Globe, Baltimore Sun, Women's Studies Quarterly, and the Journal of Economics, Race, and Policy. You can find out more about Dr. Harris at her website, Dr. That's drjasmineharris.com. Follow her on X at drharrisjay, Dr. Harris J. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, how are you? Anything new in your world? 
Oh, not a whole lot. Uh, starting in on the creation of the Atlantic World System in class uh, this week, so that's a good time. No, that's a fun time. Yeah. That's a real fun time. Yeah, capitalism and slavery and... Can't get much more enjoyable than you know, that in history uh, class. Genocide, yeah. Do you ever get students who give you grief over teaching such t uh, topics? No, not really. Because uh, it's Loyola and all that? Yeah, it's... Uh, it's been pretty low friction. If I can get them to read, that's really the main battle. <laughs> so Sunday afternoon, my plan was to come over here and participate and participate in the soup. Participate. I like that. <laughs> I slip. know. I know. Uh, participate in the soup bowl competition they were holding at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. But I couldn't make it the one block over here from my home. Because a couple of hours before the big game, out of the blue, I started getting dizzy, which was followed by shortness of breath. My oxygen levels dropped dramatically. My blood pressure went through the roof. My heart rate also went up, and I started running a fever all at once, completely out of nowhere. A few hours later, every symptom was gone except for the lightheadedness, which I'm still feeling today. So not a great weekend for me. Bodies well, are overrated. Oh, my God. But I did hit $200 on a square. Hey. <laughs> Got that bad. going for me. Yeah. And I didn't even have to invest in it. Somebody else did it for me. <laughs> you didn't even have to show up. <laughs> no. But, Will, in case you missed it, there was some breaking news over the weekend that is far bigger than whatever I had or have and likely very concerning to some Israelis. According to the Jerusalem Post, hashish dealers in Morocco have stopped supplying Israeli hashish smugglers with their hash due to the ongoing war in Gaza. Because Man. Israel may not have crossed a red line with the U.S., but it has with hashish dealers who apparently are more ethical and have a higher regard for the rule of law. The Jerusalem Post goes on to report, <laughs> it is unclear exactly when the boycott began. However, the report stated that criminal organizations have already lost tens of millions of shekels since the boycott began. And criminal organizations are willing to make that sacrifice to protect innocent civilians in Gaza. But many nations in the West are not as they abandon even the pretense of a higher moral ground. The Post states that Moroccan hash... <laughs> <laughs> the Post states that Moroccan hash is sought after worldwide as a high-quality premium product, with, es with estimates putting the trade's yearly value in the billions, making one of Morocco's most valuable industries after tourism and phosphate exports. And I would not be surprised if those exports are still making their way into Israel. But thanks, Jerusalem Post, for plugging Moroccan hash by describing it as high-quality and premium. Right. That's my kind of BDS, though. <laughs> I know, right? Cut him off from all the fun stuff. And uh, Israel uh, involved, an Israeli involved in the uh, drug trade, actually, live, who was living in Morocco, told N12, the people who made this report, that the export of hashish is a key part of the Moroccan economy, and that without it, their economy would collapse. Not that this guy involved in the drug trade has a conflict of interest or anything by claiming the product he sells is so important to Morocco, which it may be. But how about quoting someone who doesn't benefit from the perception and impression of hash's importance in the Moroccan economy? Then they quote the dealer saying, at best, over a few hundred kilograms of Moroccan hashish reach Israel. 
the price of a kilogram of Moroccan hash can reach 300,000 NIS or new Israeli shekels in Israel. That's a bit over 81,000 US dollars. The dealer adds the demand for it in Israel is crazy because it is very high quality, clean and strong. And the Jerusalem Post cannot say enough good things about Moroccan hash. I love it. The Post goes on to say Moroccan hash has regularly uh, smuggled in, it's been regularly, was regularly smuggled into Israel before the war, with several criminal organizations involved in the trade, the report noted. Local Israeli smugglers were regularly employed by these groups, some of them even yeshiva students. They would smuggle the drug in hidden compartments in their suitcases or would travel by car from Tangier to Spain on the ferry and then sell the hash in Europe. That's right, rabbinical students learning Jewish law and reading the most important Jewish texts and studying its philosophy are muling hashish from Morocco and bringing it to Europe because come on, who would expect a yeshiva student was a hashish smuggler? The Post adds a Moroccan dealer from an, from Al Rif confirmed to N12, the uh, network that covered this, that a boycott had been put in place, saying, why is it impossible, or why is it possible for Israelis to make a living selling Moroccan hash when our Palestinian brothers are suffering from hunger and living in inhumane conditions? Go buy it somewhere else. We no longer sell hash to Israelis before the war. We did business here with Israelis. Smugglers and dealers came here and made good money. Now that's the end of it. The N12 report also stated that since the uh, start of the war on Gaza in October 2023, thousands of Moroccans have taken to the streets to denounce the situation and express support for Palestinians. But more important than Moroccan hashish dealers having higher ethical and moral standards than the US, the UK, Australia, and some EU member states, including Germany, the Czech Republic, and Austria, will. What is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell comes from Garrett S., who left his suggestion at our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. Why do you think you will survive 2024? We added the why. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of This Is Hell swag. You can check out all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can email us your response. You can post it on our Facebook page. You can post it on our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole. You can post it. You can tweet it at us. You can post it in our Discord community. If you're a Patreon patron, you can post it there. And Will will be sharing some of our Patreon patrons, all of our Patreon patrons' responses so far, following our talk with Dr. Harris. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Will has this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is... Do not believe the IV infusion hangover cure hype. Oh man, a couple of my friends tried that when we were on our NOLA trip. And? Uh, they claimed that they felt better. Sure, sure. But, you know. Yeah. It's a pretty, uh, I could see why the placebo effect would be pretty strong there. Oh yeah, hell yes. I mean, it's it's not a minor intervention. If placebos work better than antidepressants. <laughs> Give me some placebos. <laughs> exactly. Man. Um, uh, San Diego CBS affiliate KFMB cites a Harris poll finding that an estimated 16 million Americans are expected to call in sick after the Super Bowl. But there's a treatment for that Super Bowl hangover in home infusions. KMFB, which has very low standards when it comes to ethics and journalism, then quotes the owner of several San Diego concierge infusion companies. <laughs> I love that. Um, that send registered nurses to your home to do an IV drip and cure what ails you. 
who clearly has a huge conflict of interest in promoting their service. KMFB then states the obvious, that having a nurse come over to your home to give you an IV infusion seems like a luxury. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe in San Diego things are a little different. Um, and that's because it is a luxury costing as much as $300 for some saline water. Exactly. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, KMFB concludes that instead of missing work, you can take an hour to shake off your Super Bowl hangover and go on with your day. However, New Jersey's leading health services provider, Meridian Health, is not buying that claim. They state, rehydrating with IV fluids won't cure a hangover because dehydration is only one symptom. An IV treatment, even with added electrolytes or vitamins, can't address all of the symptoms of a hangover, including headache, nausea, trouble concentrating, delayed reaction time, or sensitivity to light or loud noises. That makes this week's hangover cure. A little late for those of you who had hangovers the day after the big game, but it doesn't matter as IV infusion hangover cures do not do not work. <laughs> and apparently my cats are hungover because they have intense sensitivity to light or loud noises. <laughs> Coming up, I didn't know they drank as much as I thought. Coming up, the value of a college education isn't the same for everybody. Will shares listeners' answers to this week's question from Mel as posted as at our pace, Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll have this week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi, and we'll tell you who we have confirmed as our guests for the rest of this week's shows, and we confirmed a big guest for next week that I'll be sharing with you later on the show as well. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. And if there's anything that is a dissenting opinion in the United States, it's that in education, even the exact same education with students having comparable success, does not benefit students equally. In fact, the old saw that the way to help an underdeveloped community is to give them access to an education may be just that, an overused cliche that reveals a lack of original thinking. Here to provide that original thinking that is lacking on racial equality in university-level education, we are very pleased to have on our show today Dr. Jasmine L. Harris, author of Black Women, Ivory Tower, Revealing the Lies of White Supremacy in American Education. You can find out more about Dr. Harris at her website. That's Dr. Jasmine Harris, drjasmineharris.com, and you can follow her on X at Dr. Harris J. That's Dr. Harris J-A-Y. Welcome to This Is Hell, Dr. Harris. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is fascinating because it makes you makes dumb white people like me start realizing the <laughs> un, the inequality of an education because we're so, you know, inundated with the message that education cures all of society's wounds. You begin by writing about when you started going to school at Vassar, where my actually uh, my sister-in-law went, a fellow first-year student who you describe as a blonde white girl who you did not know before, tells you my grandma and great-grandma went to Vassar too. And you mentioned how she pointed out important landmarks on campus. You explain I was the only black person on the Jewett Hall Tower floor, which was not unexpected as a school where the black population hovers around 4%. But this was a new wrinkle. I naively assumed that at least all of us freshmen had an unfamiliarity with this place in common. I guess maybe I thought a few students would have a leg up because an older sibling or other singular and, and distant relative had attended uh, Vassar College decades ago. But what I encountered was something else, a belonging I couldn't relate to, a belonging I couldn't relate to, a relationship to this place that I could not replicate. Was this sense of belonging also 
a sense for you of who does not belong. Did you ever witness students who felt like they belonged engaging in discrimination against those they felt did not belong, whether they recognized they were engaging in such discrimination or not? Yeah, you know, and the hardest part about having this book out in the world is, you know, that that those things did happen. And, and the thing about discrimination and, and racism more broadly is that we mostly think about it as an individual occurrence, an individual phenomenon, right? So those people that I experienced and engaged with and interacted with at Vassar that um, engaged in, in racism or discrimination were doing it purposefully and of their own accord. But that's not how racism and discrimination function in the United States as a method that impacts people's life chances and outcomes, right? And that's, so that's not to say that people are not individually racist or discriminatory and purposely engage in acts um, to that end, right? That, that certainly happens. But what is more insidious about racism and discrimination is when the folks that you are interacting with are engaging with it and, and don't even really understand, right? So on Vassar's campus, for example, I took a lot of, I think the folks who were involved would describe as like, you know, friendly ribbing or, um, or joking, right. About the volume of my voice, about the, uh, perceived aggressiveness of my personality, right? I've had uh, student, other students, but also now as adults, folks come to me and say, you know, I was really afraid to talk to you in college, right? And that fear doesn't have anything to do with the way that I interacted with people, but more about expectations of perception. So when I say, Yes, I experienced racism and discrimination on that campus. What I mean is that racism and discrimination is embedded in the campus, right? The the girl that I am talking about in that introductory story wasn't attempting to position herself as atop the, the racial hierarchy by telling me about this historical familial connections that she had with the institution, but they underlie racism all the same, right? That, that you have a different position at this school than I do. And now that you have provided that information, our positions in the social hierarchy here are already affirmed and and we've been here for <laughs> 30 minutes right um we just got here so so yes that the short answer is yes but the longer answer is is that you know black people and black women in particular experience a kind of racism and discrimination moving through historically white spaces that 
often doesn't have much to do with the individuals themselves. This came up in a conversation recently about uh, police violence and how police often see uh, adult African-American women, they perceive them as aggressive and they use that as a reason for quote unquote, defending themselves and often just murdering uh, unarmed black woman. That perceived aggressiveness came up in conversations about police violence. And I just find that fascinating that here you are talking about being in a advisor and uh, also being labeled with that same perceived aggressiveness. But right now you're teaching at University of Texas, San Antonio. I don't know what other schools you went to or where else you taught. How much does this vary from a private school like Vassar to a public school like UTSA? Um, There is variation, right, uh, across institutions. So, for example, the first school that I taught at after I finished my doctorate was Wake Forest University, which has a much larger population of Black students and Black students of a particular class um, compared to Vassar, for example. However, the embeddedness of racism and discrimination and therefore students' experiences of it are still there, right? Something that I would constantly (laughs) point to when I was teaching at Wake Forest is the fact that the land on which the institution sits used to be a working plantation. And the magnolia trees that line the quad that are hundreds of years old would have been trees that enslaved folks were hung on, right? Um, and and the fact that that history is there and has a sort of direct impact on how I understand the place positions me very differently than my white colleagues uh, in the sociology department, which is where I was working, who didn't often sort of have to to think about that as they were moving through the space. At UTSA here uh, in Texas, we are an HSI, which means that we have more than 25% of Hispanic students. HSI stands for Hispanic Serving Institution. And and so you might think, especially in a city like San Antonio that has a majority Mexican population, that that would mean experiences of of racism and discrimination on that campus are less, but they're not. They're, They're simply different, right? UTSA is still run by white men. We have a white male president and uh, many white men in administration. Um, It's a public institution, which makes us beholden to legislation put forth by the state. And I'm sure you know that Texas is a very conservative state politically. And right now we are dealing with the recent passing of Senate Bill 17, which requires all um, public universities to eliminate diversity, equity, and inclusion offices and programs on their campuses. So our Office of Inclusive Excellence is now closed. And that means that there are students, Black students, Afro-Mexican students um, as well, who have lost 
the one space on campus that was dedicated to improving their sense of belonging on campus. And, and all of this, you know, the the amount of variability, but the fact that the racism and discrimination remains is one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book, because I think that to your point earlier, we have socialized folks in the United States to think about college educations as this very important and impactful step in reaching the American dream. But in socializing folks to think that way, we have illuminated the historical foundations of the institution and, and understandings of those historical foundations, which if known, would clarify you know, for whom that American dream is possible through education, regardless of if you're at a public institution, a private institution, one in the South or one on the East Coast, that, that this uh, racism is pervasive and um, perpetual in terms of its impact on students. The DEI programs like yours are being attacked by Republicans because they see DEI as something somehow that is unfair to them, that it gives an unfair advantage to people who are not white. Clearly, they're upset about a challenge to white supremacy. But let's put that aside for a second. You write how you were surrounded by legacy students with deep and perpetual ties at the institution, at Vassar. In fact, my class included the highest percentage of admitted legacy students to date in the school's history. So you're trying to have diversity, equity, and inclusion in universities. When it comes to the reproduction of intellectualism, who were the people for whom these colleges were intended? And who were these institutions not intended to educate? Who are the people who you are trying to bring diversity, equity, and inclusion to who have been excluded from the university, <laughs> prohibited from having an education for hundreds of years? Right, right. Uh, you know, I think that folks forget um, you know, especially in all of this discussion about Ivy Leagues and a lot of folks rightly say, you know, those are not the only institutions that we have. We have community colleges, we have state funded schools, um, but that ignores that higher education as an institution was founded by Harvard University and uh, William and Mary. They sort of fight over who was the first uh, university in the United States. Um, and it's both in 1637, but most people give that honor, quote unquote, to Harvard, right? Harvard is not just the most prestigious institution in the United States today, it is the first institution of higher education of its kind in the United States. And Harvard was for upper class white men only, right? Protestant white men, I, I should clarify. And the purpose of, of schools like Harvard and then Princeton and Yale, who came you know, soon after and were built in the image of Harvard, was to be able to provide a perpetual class of white men to 
lead the major businesses in this country and to fill all of the political positions um, at the federal and state and local levels. And if you look at our presidential history, you will see that all of the, uh, the past presidents of the United States have been educated at either Harvard or um, the aforementioned schools built in their image like Yale and Princeton. Um, it was would be 200 full years before women, white women, right? White upper class women would have similar opportunities for education at that level. And that happened via the Ivy League schools um, and the creation of what is called the Seven Sisters Schools. So there were these uh, schools for white women, upper-class white women that were created and founded specifically to be in partnership with their uh, all-male counterparts. So Vassar, for example, went co-ed in 69 rather than merging with their brother school, which was Yale University. Radcliffe is Harvard, Barnard, Columbia, um, and so on and so forth. Um, and what's interesting about all of this is that just because it's one thing to say that these schools were built for white people, but they were built on the labor of black people, black people's fingerprints, um, much like, you know, in Washington, D.C. and the, the creation of the White House and the Capitol building, um, they built these buildings. They provided the labor, not just for the founders and the professors, but also for the students. Um, something that's really interesting at Vassar, and this might be different now because um, I haven't been haven't been back since the uh, lockdown started in 2020, but previous to that, and they were in the middle of, of renovating some of the buildings for the first time in, in um, almost a hundred years. Um, when I went there, uh, the room next door to me, so I lived in a one room double my freshman year with another uh, woman, a white woman. And next door on the uh, right side was a two room double. But this two-room double, and there were plenty of these around campus, had one huge room that you had to walk through to get into a much smaller, almost closet-sized room. And I could not figure out why someone would build this configuration. You know, at 18, I'm like, why is this room so big and this room so little? And you have to be in this room and you have to be in this room. And I did some digging and I realized that those were slave quarters and you know, later maids quarters for the laborers that these rich white women brought with them <laughs> to the, the institution. So, so we're there, right? But we, you know, first because of laws that prevented our education and then because of laws that prevented uh, integration, we're not allowed to participate in the education that was happening there. And that's really the foundation of higher education in the U.S. So uh, myself and my producer's jaw just dropped. And what we just <laughs> clearly said to each other by lip reading is the same thing. And we cannot repeat it because this is going to be aired on the radio. But that is... <laughs> 
crazy. That is crazy. What did you tell your white uh, sweet mate? Did you tell them what you had discovered? What what would happen when you explained this to your white friends at, at Vassar? Because I'm sure that that didn't go over well. Oh, I didn't explain it. No, no, no. <laughs> no, to your point, right, that that message coming from me would have been socially damaging, right? No, none of those kids want to hear that. Even the rich kids who are living in that room. And, and that room in particular is really interesting because um, one of the, there was uh, boys in that room men. Um, and one um, was the son of a very well-known restaurateur in the Bay Area at that time. And the other was the great-grandson of a president, right, that was living in the teeny tiny room. And I always thought how ironic it was that the, the person who had a president in his immediate bloodline was the one that was living in the slave quarters <laughs> that year. <laughs> so I didn't say anything, but I, you know, was constantly paying attention to what was going on. And, and I didn't have the language at that point to really explain to them in a way that would have not sounded, you know, accusatory to, to talk about the sort of foundations of, of race and class in, in higher education. And it wasn't until I started thinking about this book and, and thinking about my experiences at Vassar where it just became so clear. And, and I want this book to offer that language to Black women and girls who are in high school, who are in colleges at historically white serving um, colleges and universities so that they are not taking in this information and internalizing it, right? And thinking about it as, um, you know, something that is only impactful for them and instead starting to understand this as a structural, right? Because I knew I had that information, but it was going to feel very individualized coming from me. And I didn't know how to explain institutional racism at 18, but, um, but I want to be able to explain that to, you know, the 18 to 22, 24 year olds that are going to college now so that they can be more prepared than I was for what that experience will be like. So and uh, just to follow up on what you were saying about all the you know powerful people, my uh, sister-in-law, she went uh, to Vassar and when she went, the uh, her roommate was the child of a Supreme Court justice at the mm. time. So that's not you know surprising. So mm -hmm. is, is the goal of was the goal of these schools and more importantly, to this day is the goal of these Ivy League schools to build an aristocracy prior to the revolution and the thought of having a democratic nation here in this country. Did we already have the foundation for an aristocracy built by the universities here? And is that still the goal of these Ivy League schools? It's a great question and it has a two-part answer. The first part is initially, yes, the goal was explicitly to create this aristocracy and the presidents were very vocal about that point. Um, something that, that folks don't know in all of this discussion about admissions policies and affirmative action that's been happening over the last year, 
that Harvard University actually created admissions policies. Um, and they did so because in the early 1900s, the president of Harvard looked around and said, we have too many Jewish students and we are supposed to be focusing on Protestant students. Remember, I, I added that piece in earlier in the discussion. And so they create a list of characteristics for the ideal student and start to use this list as they are going through potential uh, student groups, right? As students who have submitted applications. Again, in the mid 1940s, they refine that list of characteristics to explicitly talk about race because now we're in the 1940s and um, you know segregation is is coming to an end, at least you know politically. And um, and the reason the 1940s is significant is because you had all of these. Uh, Black GIs, you know, veterans coming home from World War II with GI bills. And GI bills were supposed to be used for education or for housing. And Harvard did not want to admit any Black students via the GI Bill. And so they added race to their admissions policies. Uh, Vassar admitted something like 142 GIs men, which was um, also interesting at the time because they were not yet a co-ed institution. And none of those people were uh, Black. They were all white men. So yes, explicitly historically, they were trying to create this aristocracy. Today, you can't be so explicit in your racism, right? And this sort of brings us back around to, to what we were talking about in the beginning and the embeddedness of, of racism. And so because we are using pieces of the same policies, right? Because we are trying very specifically to pull with us this sort of historical culture of the institutions, the racism comes with it, right? And so Harvard's uh, most recent class that graduated in uh, spring 2023, their percentage of legacy students was something like 33%. And, you know, if we're talking about who would have been at Harvard over the last 50 or 60 years, it is likely that most of those legacy students are white. And so that is how institutional racism ends up continuing long after people have used it explicitly to exclude Black people, but people of color more broadly. You don't have to say it explicitly in 2024 because the racism is already um, embedded into the, the way that the institution functions. The building of an aristocracy is already built into the way that the institution functions at, at every level. And there's been a lot of research that, that says that the value of a Harvard degree for 
white people um, in particular is extremely high. Um, and it, it's one of the reasons why you have things like that Operation Varsity Blues scandal that happened about 10 years ago now, where celebrities that that whose kids don't need to go to a particular school are, you know, engaging in fraud to make that happen. And that's because we still understand the role of these institutions in building those aristocracies, even if we don't say it explicitly. We are speaking with Dr. Jasmine L. Harris, author of Black Women, Ivory Tower, Revealing the Lies of White Supremacy in American Education. Find out more about Dr. Harris at her website, drjasmineharris.com. Follow her on X at drharrisj, that's J-A-Y. So what role do you think the idea of legacy plays in contributing to structural, if not institutional inequality, not just at the university setting, but everywhere? Can the concept of a legacy student be excised from American college education? I think that it should, right? It should because there's such a complicated history around who was allowed to go to what schools, right? I mean, and this is even true if you look at HBCUs, right? The Black students who were educated at HBCUs in the early to mid-1900s likely came from um, more middle and upper class families than you would think, right? You know, the the Spellmans and the Morehouses and the, the Howards of the world perpetuate class disadvantage in the same ways that prestigious, historically white-serving institutions do because our national history is about the role of class as a, a you know a marker of status and upward social mobility that's what capitalism is founded on and so if we want to think about higher education as this truly equitable place where anyone from any circumstance can enter be successful and utilize that education to expand their economic possibilities in the sort of quote unquote real world, then, then that's what you would think we would want to do as, as a country. But as it stands, the institution of higher education has very explicit class and race implications that directly impact who has college degrees in this country. And if you if you look at the rate of college degree holders in the United States and overlap those rates onto class, you will see that representation um, increases as you move up the, the class ladder. And and to my point earlier, that is how it was set up, right? That that was the initial purpose of the institution. But if we're moving towards equity, as the country moves towards a, a more diverse demographic, then we have to be willing to let go 
of some of those histories and acknowledge the negative impacts of some of those histories. And, and that's just something that folks are not always interested in, in doing, in part because they feel those familial connections, right? I don't want to change this system because the way that the system has worked for a hundred years feels deeply connected with my own family's history, rather than sort of thinking about the broader impacts to folks who would otherwise not have access to those institutions. As you point out in your writing, access doesn't necessarily, access to a university education doesn't necessarily mean you'll have a successful education. How much success were you, or if you know in general, was DEI having? How how important is DEI to that sense of belonging at a university that leads to a success in any university setting? How important is belonging not only to success, but how important is belonging to DEI and DEI to belonging at a university level for Black students? Yeah, I mean, belonging is is one of those concepts that, that I think that we forget, but it's so important because it has not just, you know, psychological or emotional impacts, but also physical ones, right? You know, if a, if a student feels like they don't belong in the place where they're not just learning, but they're also living and in the case of most and, and many Black students working, then, you know, you will develop anxieties and, and stress. And we know that, you know, perpetual anxiety and uh, continual stressors lead to all kinds of health difficulties. So now we're thinking about not just the impact on mental health, but on physical health. And both of those things deeply impact your ability to be academically successful in college. And, and I think where we've done a disservice to Black students is thinking that, that you know, perhaps the gap between their admittance rate and their graduation rate is about uh, a disinterest, you know, in in finishing a degree or um, in an ability to finish the degree because of some intellectual deficiency, and instead thinking about that gap and you know the difficulties that institutions that are historically white serving have in retaining Black students and Black faculty and staff as um, about their perpetual sense of non-belonging and the long-term impacts on their personal health, right? And DEI offices are, and, and, and programs and initiatives, are really the only stopgap that we have in uh, institutions of higher education to try to alleviate some of those anxieties and some of those stressors and provide support that allows Black students to more frequently make it from beginning to end of their college educations. And so, you know, that is why removing DEI 
offices, programs, and initiatives from institutions is so insidious, right? Um, and it does the work of perpetuating racism in these spaces because it's taking away the one thing that may have an impact on Black students' non-belonging. And without that, they, you know, are, are essentially going to be thrown to the wolves and a lot of the work to support them is going to fall disproportionately on Black women faculty. And we're already doing more of that labor on top of, you know, the DEI offices. We're trying to provide that additional support. Without it, we are the, the support, right? It, it reminds me of... Um, a book that's coming out by Jessica Colarco on the role that women played during the pandemic lockdowns as a sort of like labor stopgap for childcare for for uh, parents who had children who were no longer in school. It's like all of the burden and the onus of making sure that students were learning and were happy and healthy then fell on mothers. Um, and, you know, Black women in a lot of ways play or asked to play a motherly role at uh, historically white serving institutions. And that role is only going to be ramped up without DEI offices to help. Wow, Jessica's book sounds awesome. We should definitely have her on the show. You write that yeah. in, in 2022, income and wealth disparities persist as the overwhelming whiteness of higher education maintains disadvantages across social and economic landscapes for black people. With lim limited access to the country's most prestigious and predominantly white colleges and universities, black college graduates acquire very little for their families to inherit. What, dri then, you know, what drives the belief that universities are meritocracies absent any advantages based on race, gender, or class. What, what do you think that idea that universities are meritocracies either reveals about the universities or about the United States in general? I think it reveals how steadfastly we in American society hold these ideas of, of better days in the past, right? When um, you could go to college for, you know, $5,000 a year and come out the other side with a job waiting for you and uh, a home easily purchased. And we, one, we, we never lived in that time, Black people, right? That that was never an opportunity for us. I, I talked about um, the use of, of Black veterans' GI bills for education. They were also stopped from using those GI bills to attain mortgages. And actually, the introduction of suburbs in the United States is a direct reflection of a society that was attempting to prevent Black people from gaining wealth through home ownership. And, and many of the first uh, suburbs that were created, uh, including Levittown out in Pennsylvania, which is thought of as the, the very first suburb in the United States, they had signs in the entrance to the, what we would now call a subdivision that would say no blacks, 
right? Um, and they would work with the local banks to say, you know, please do not, no matter how much money they have, please do not approve mortgages to Black families in these neighborhoods. And so, you know, this idea of meritocracy is, is a fiction that we have been socialized to believe through images, through movies and films um, that never existed for a particular population of the United States. And we continue to, to push that dream by saying, well, Black people, you too. You know, you come to college too, I suppose, and, and maybe you can do this as well. That's what was missing. Y'all just didn't have, have access to, to this education. Rather than trying to sort of dismantle and pull apart that old imagery and say, well, wow, this was actually not working for anybody except for this population of white men. And perhaps then we should rethink what, what college is meant for, right? I, I see a lot of discourse on social media from, from Gen Z and Gen A, you know, talking about the, the lack of necessity of, of college education and in particular of like humanities and social sciences, which ask for more critical thinking and are, are less focused on um, building a particular skill for the labor market. And the reason that, you know, these generations are like, where's my labor market skill? is because they are still attempting to build this American dream through a, a meritocracy that 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 doesn't exist and that that hasn't ever existed in the way that we position it in the United States. So, you know, I think that, that we need to to rethink how we approach higher education more broadly. And um, and what what we think is useful for students to gain in those settings, rather than trying to continue to position education as a sort of end all be all, pay however much you need to get in and get through, and it will change your life. Because for a lot of folks, it's not changing any lives. And I can tell you through our business model of being completely listener supported, never accepting any uh, commercial or foundation money, any kind of grant money. There's definitely not a meritocracy here in the United States. <laughs> so you write that uh, college admissions and therefore subsequent job opportunities, network access and wealth accumulation are one mechanism by which individuals have the opportunity to accumulate valuable educational capital, the tangible benefits of attending certain schools, achieving particular accolades in their lifetimes and passing down that success to their children. But black college graduates can't uh, don't accumulate and pass down educational capital in the same way as their white peers. How well did programs under the rubric of what's known as affirmative action do in addressing the inaccessible inaccessibility to those tangible benefits? How much worse will it be now that the Supreme Court effectively ended race-conscious admissions in a 6-3 decision in late June of 2023? Because you write about in, uh, uh, affirmative action in your book, and I wanted to make sure we touched on this. Yeah, I mean, it'll be worse, right? Um, it'll be worse. And the reason that we know it'll be worse because with 
30 some years of affirmative action, we've seen only small incremental increases in the percentage of Black students at these prestigious institutions where the educational capital is such an important piece of it. So at Vassar, for example, it was something like 4% when I got there. Um, It's something like 6% now. Uh, And I started uh, 20, it's almost time for our 20-year reunion, (laughs) which is kind of crazy to think about. So in 20 years of affirmative action and being led by women presidents, white women presidents who have explicitly talked about the importance of diversifying the student body, still only seen small changes. Um, And that's because, you know, affirmative action in its practice was actually the most beneficial for white women. Um, And and that's because gender was included as a a part of diversity um, and white women, you know, because of their proximity to white maleness, were able to utilize that to, to get a leg up. Um, and and so if we were only seeing small shifts with affirmative action, without affirmative action, we are likely to go back to pre-affirmative action numbers, if not lower. And that matters because of that sort of educational piece that um, that you read from from the book. I have a PhD, and I still get the most network value out of my undergrad degree from Vassar because of the prestige of the institution, because of the wealth of the network and the extensiveness of that network. Um, I have a doctorate, but I have to assert you know, my doctor title Everywhere I go, in order to be, you know, treated with a, a, a modicum of of the kind of respect that white, you know, folks with that credential get, right? Um, my my stepchildren don't get to utilize my uh, doctor title when they're out in our mostly white and Mexican neighborhood, and neither do I, right? I have to introduce myself to people and tell them what I do and where I do it to uh, make them think, you know, going back to this concept of belonging, that that I belong in this neighborhood. And so, you know, I, I think affirmative action is one of those policies that was supposed to be beneficial uh, in its inception um, and had some uh, impact on Black people's ability to gain entrance into previously all-white organizations and institutions. Um, But even that was, was small. And without it, it's going to be even smaller. That's really interesting because my sister is a writer. She has a PhD in biology and in her byline, she's white. In her byline, she never adds that she's a doctor. Yet here Hmm. you are saying that, you know, 
There's, that's the only way that you can remind people that you have had such success in education. You write that there are so few narratives, even at the turn of the 21st century, that we'd never just assume my academic. They'd never just assume my uh, academic success. Your success. You're talking about a counsel, a guidance counselor at your high school. Without that assumption, why would he voluntarily take a second look at my file? The lack of historical narratives of black college students positions us as anomalies, not evidence of black achievement but a result of the law of averages. We were there based on luck more than anything else. Black students don't just gain higher education membership through attendance, the way the property owners buy membership to the right neighborhoods, close to modern conveniences with good schools and safe public areas. We have to prove we deserve to have even given been given access to the same spaces where white people's deservedness is preordained by race. So did affirmative action then... And, unintentionally, I would hope, cause a greater perception that black students did not get into schools based on their academic success, merit, or intelligence, but something else. Did this give another reason to black students not having a feeling of belonging unintentionally? Oh, yeah. And and I would say um, that it's actually very intentional that... that um, that understanding, right? Um, that that folks were going out of their way to say, especially at the the beginnings of affirmative action policies, that you are here because of affirmative action. And you know, thinking about the socialization of of meritocracy and our belief in it, there's also been uh, a lot of of socialization around our belief about the necessity of affirmative action and, um, and, and speaking about internalization, you know, I have had students come to me when I go to talks, not just about this book, but about, you know, lots of things in terms of the black experience and say, I don't want people to think I am an affirmative action hire, or I got into this school because of affirmative action. What can I do to distance myself? from these policies and that idea, right? Um, and that, again, is this sort of very insidious nature of racism that is then causing Black people to internalize their own degradation, right? That um, rather than acknowledging affirmative action, just like the Civil Rights Act, right, as something that was necessary in this search for equality for Black people in the United States, uh, you know, post-Reconstruction and emancipation and all of that, we have uh, created an idea that affirmative action is actually bad, and it's actually bringing in people who are not qualified for these positions and instead only there because of their race and gender, when in reality, the the use of affirmative action is supposed to be looking at people who are exactly the same in every other way except for race and thinking about the benefit to an organization or an institution to hire uh, the, the Black person as opposed to the white person, right? And so uh, I would say it was unintentional in the writing of affirmative action policy, but it was intentional in its execution and in the way that folks have 
thought about and perceived that set of policies that has made it particularly uh, difficult for Black people to actually benefit from and be happy benefiting from. So what happens to education when knowledge does not mean power? Do you believe the portion of African-Americans going to college is affected by that knowledge has not equated to power for the African-American community or its individual members? Do you think that education is devalued within the African-American community because they understand that education does not necessarily mean financial success, career success, or power? Yeah, and, and some of that devaluation is not even conscious, right? It becomes uh, a devaluation that happens over a thousand tiny cuts that you experience from the first time that you get into school. Something that I talk about in the book um, is that, you know, I was a straight A student, I was in AP classes, I played instruments, I was in the choir. I was on multiple sports teams, but I also spent a lot of time in detention. And the reason that I spent a lot of time in detention is because I was being, oh, again, now I have the language for this at the time, I didn't really understand it, but I was being over surveilled as one of very few black girls in the school. So I would, you know, be, asked by the hall monitor to check the length of my skirt or my shorts and then get a detention slip for that. Meanwhile, there are white girls, you know, walking past in the hallways, all wearing the same length skirt or shorter than I am. You know, this is in the 90s. So we're all wearing those clueless style skirts at the time. Um, or, you know, I tell a story in the book where I was in wood tech and I was chewing gum and I got a detention slip for chewing gum. But the white girl at the same table as me who gave me the gum, who was also chewing gum, did not get detention or even a, a reprimand. Um, and, and so that that sort of internal devaluation of education that happens in, in Black communities is not an indication of always, I should say, an indication of this explicit understanding of the gap between education and the, the power and, you know, um, upward social mobility that may come with it. And it's more a uh, an understanding of all of the negative experiences that they've had in those settings that make them not want to continue to put themselves in, you know, in those contexts because of the expectation of violence or, or trauma or, or degradation in the space. I got two more questions for you. I know that we're running over, but you write that building university campus culture around the concept of family, where university alumni status and with it access to the social networks and intrinsic value imbued in the university name makes belonging one of the most precious things to pass down and share with children and grandchildren. To do so ignores the racism perpetuating narratives of family on college campuses where black people, though present, were not then and are not now family at all. How is the concept of family, an idea that is thoroughly embraced as we've discussed with scholars on family abolition, like Sophie Lewis and Emmy O'Brien, racially toxic when applied at an institution of higher education? How can something we are told is universally beloved, the bedrock of our society, supposedly 
How does how does that become a driver of inequality or toxic racism at a university? Well, because it draws clear lines around who can belong and who cannot belong and what that belonging is supposed to to look like. Um I one of my best friends from Vassar used to tell stories about going to her father's college reunions at Harvard and then being a young child and interacting and playing with these other children whose parents were also Harvard graduates. And, you know, for for me, you know, to hear that as someone who at the time had never stepped on Harvard's campus, right, at, at all, to, to think, well, wow, this person has all of these deep connections, memories of a space that no one in my family has ever been able to to touch, right? Um, for very racialized reasons. And that immediately shifts, you know, who we understand each other to be, if if that makes sense. That at Vassar, I played a sport, I was in an a cappella group, I was a student, right? Which really should be the only prerequisite for belonging on a college campus, but I was trying to insert myself into all of these different spaces as if to say to everyone, see, I'm a part of the family too. But in reality, I was more like the redheaded stepchild, right? That phrase that we use to describe the the family member who feels ostracized and there's no worse social position to be in i would argue than to be the member of the family that nobody wants there and that's what you know connecting they have this concept of family and familial ties to college attendance and legacy and you know historical connections to institutions does for black students it positions us as on the outside and we are family in so much as we are in this space at the moment but after that ability to still draw those familial connections shifts a lot something that i talk about in the book is how when I wear Vassar gear, you know, sweatshirt, t-shirts, that sort of thing, the first question that I get from white people who recognize the, the school name is to ask who I know that went there, right? So there's not even this assumption that I probably went to this institution because I'm wearing all of this Vassar gear in Texas, for example, right? Where Vassar is nowhere around. And, uh, and it's that, then I have to assert that I attended the school the year I attended the school. I probably have to drop that I'm now a doctor as a, a way to make those connections stick for the person that I'm talking to. 
So it's, it's still like I'm begging to be a part of this family that no one is ever going to assume I'm I'm part of because I don't look the part, right? Because I'm a redhead in a family of brunettes or because I'm a black person in a family of all white upper class people. We And, oh, go, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, 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 I'm good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have been speaking with Dr. Jasmine L. Harris, author of Black Women Ivory Tower, Revealing the Lies of White Supremacy in American Education. You gotta read this book. It's gonna blow your mind. Dr. Harris, uh, you can find her website at drjasmineharris.com. That's drjasmineharris.com. You can follow her on X at drharrisjjay. One last question for you, Dr. Harris, and we do this with all of our guests, I promise. Final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may not want to ask, you may not want to answer, or I should say, we may we may hate asking, you may hate responding to, or our audience might hate your response. You write the black graduates of what you call HWSCUs, which is awesome, historically white-serving colleges and universities, do still pass down alternative forms of educational capital to descendants. Instead of gaining full access to the institutional prestige of HWSCUs, black graduate status as college degree holders is never assumed, as you've been saying, even as their presence in higher education tracks continuously upward. Instead, black graduates pass down the art of pretending to belong in higher education and the tools to help extend that performance beyond graduation to maintain institutional connections. Now, we we're talking about how the universities were about building an aristocracy. Do universities teach whiteness and how not to make white people feel uncomfortable or anxious? Is success for a black student in an HWSCU learning how to be, oh God, I'm going to hate asking this, white to any degree? <laughs> Uh, it's learning how to feign assimilation into whiteness, right? Um, and because that's the expectation. Do you have the right language? Do you have the right affectation? Can you connect to white cultural phenomenon? Um, I, you know, talk about having to know white groups and their music and, you know, be able to dance and participate at, at parties where those things are, are being played. Um, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, he was a big proponent of using higher education, albeit for the specific talented 10th of, of the Black population, but using that as a method of gaining social and economic power in the United States. And he didn't talk about it as assimilation um, or so becoming white, but instead he talked about it as infiltrating, right? These spaces that were purposefully made for white people. Uh, and so, you know, when I talk about the things that the black students share, black faculty share, it is, you know, what, what people to avoid, who to expect, you know, explicit individual racism from, what spaces and offices can provide support to us as individuals, but also to our students? What books are you reading, you know, that may help um, 
to sort of facilitate your embeddedness in the institution. So it's not an attempt to become white, right? But it is an attempt to, one, shield yourself from what has come to be expectations of racism in a place and also how to perform a belonging in a space that you don't feel like you belong at all. That sounds like an incredible obstacle to education. Yeah. <laughs> Another reason why you see these differences in outcomes, right? Where white college students are are in college to have a good time, to find out who they are, to test boundaries and test limits. Black students are dealing with a whole different set of, of issues that need to be put in front of all of that self-discovery. And as a result, we many of us end up not engaging in that stuff until way later in life. Wow. I cannot thank you enough for being on today. This is an absolutely spectacular book. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And whenever you want to be back on our show, you have an open invitation. We are speaking, we have been speaking with Dr. Jasmine L. Harris, author of Black Women, Ivory Tower, Revealing the Lies of White Supremacy in American Education. And I know it's against FCC rules to do a call to action, but let me tell you, go buy Dr. Harris's book. You can find out more about her at our website, drjasmineharris.com, DR. Follow her on X at drharrisjay. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you for having me. This is a great conversation. Thank you. Live in the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. Do you know the uh, Hall of Fame quarterback played for the Kansas City Chiefs? He was an announcer at one time, Len Dawson. Are you familiar with that guy's name? Yes. Okay. So Len Dawson was an analyst on CBS football broadcasts until he was fired for saying after a quarterback got sacked, he said, that guy got hit like a redheaded stepchild. Yikes. <laughs> so that was the end of his time hey. in the booth. <laughs> Uh, better than Howard Cosell's fate, right? Oh, jeez. <laughs> if don't look it up, folks, nope, you will nope, be very nope, upset. Nope. It's upsetting. Do not find out how and why Howard Cosell was fired or his last broadcast. <laughs> yeah. If our conversation with Dr. Harris made you realize that even an education cannot help overcome institutional racism in the United States and white supremacy... Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell, proving that meritocracies don't work, by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Will, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience, and how are our listeners responding so far on Patreon? This week's question from hell is, why do you think you will survive 2024? Thanks you know, to Garrett S. Yeah, thank you, Garrett S., on the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook page. We have nine responses on Patreon from Sweet. our generous subscribers. Starting things off is Nas Refuge, who says, I ducked at just the right moment. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. I did that with somebody throwing a Coke can at my head off a four-story uh, parking structure. Oh, full or? Full. Yeah. Hey, that, yeah. that could have been Death City. Yeah. Eesh. Um... Greg G 
answers. My life insurance is less than two years old. (laughs) (laughs) Right? All right. Let's see. uh, Josh L's getting a little Cartesian on us. I think I'm going to survive 2024. Therefore, I am going to survive 2024. (laughs) That's a good one, though. I like it. Um, Tom H says naivete. (laughs) All right. right. Neil C, intestinal fortitude. (laughs) Essential, a firm handshake with the manager. (laughs) Uh, Dan K. You didn't like it last week, so how about this week? You got somewhere better to be? (laughs) (laughs) And finally, Justin M. wraps us up with my stockpile of bootstraps. Oh, well, there you go. Good answers, Patreon. (laughs) Yes, very good, very good. The person with our favorite answer, as always, wins their choice of This Is Hell swag. Just If you want to see our stuff, just go to thisishell.com and click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole, at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell, if you are a subscriber, at our Discord community, or on Twitter. Will, what do I have to say here? Oh, yeah. (laughs) We must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following uh, Dr. Sebastian Vupper and the past inside the present when Seb, a historian by trade, gives us the historical context of the past so we have a better understanding of our present. Will, what's Seb talking about this week? Seb looks at the chaotic period of mandatory Palestine during World War II and how events during that time led up to the Arab-Israeli War in 1948. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. This week in rotten history on February 11th, 1826, 198 years ago this week, classified ad appeared in the Elizabeth City Star and North Carolina Eastern Intelligencer. It was placed by a white man named Alfred Moore, offering $20 in 1826 money, worth about $600 today, so not that much, as a reward for the return of a 24-year-old African-American man named Joe, whom he had enslaved. In the ad, Moore offered a physical description of Joe and said that it was his third escape. He opined that Joe had run away, quote, without any cause, unquote. But he added that Joe had a wife who was now owned by another enslaver on a farm about a dozen miles away. Moore said that Joe was, quote, probably lurking, unquote, around that farm, and he offered readers the cash reward, which would, quote, be paid if delivered to me or secured in jail so that I can get him. Imagine the amount of denialism, the amount of cognitive dissonance you have to go through in order to believe that a slave has no cause to escape slavery. Who knows? Maybe the legacy of generations, centuries of slavery, and white culture convincing itself that there's absolutely nothing wrong with slavery has had a huge effect on Southern society to this day being heavily influenced by that kind of denialism. Now, who knows? In Rotten History on February 14th, 1945, 79 years ago this week, Great Britain and the United States were in the midst of a massive firebombing of the the German city of Dresden. Because it's Valentine's Day, I guess? One of the most notorious operations of World War II, and Dresden becomes even more cruel when you consider the fact that it did happen on Valentine's Day. Which will now always be Dresden Day for me. 
Over, thanks a lot, Ronaldo. Over a period of three days, the two air forces would drop almost 4,000 tons of explosives on that city, killing some 25,000 people. Meanwhile, about 75 miles to the southeast, the U.S. Army Air Force 398th Bombardment Group was having a hard time finding Dresden. The American pilots would later testify that due to malfunctioning radar, they had been forced to navigate by the notoriously inaccurate method of dead reckoning and were pushed off course by a 100 mile an hour wind. The group of 40 B-17 bombers arrived above a city that was hard to see through the patchy clouds. Looked like Dresden. One navigator said he wasn't quite sure, but he was overruled. And it's probably not a good idea to overrule your navigator who has the best instruments for detecting what is being bombed or the bombardier for that matter. The group commander, who clearly didn't have a concern for lives of innocent civilians, then gave the order anyway. And the planes dumped more than 150 tons of explosives onto the city in just five minutes. The bombardiers could not take aim on specific locations due to the heavy clouds, so it was a blind attack. I can use that word because I'm legally blind. The bombs hit densely populated residential neighborhoods, blowing up about 100 houses, killing 701 people, all civilians, and injuring almost 1,200 more. Only later would the U.S. pilots learn that they had bombed not Dresden, but Prague, the capital of nearby Czechoslovakia, as it was known and is now known as Czechia. A city that, despite being occupied by Nazi Germans, which was friendly, uh, but was friendly to the Allies. In the aftermath, official apologies would be made, and pilots would repeatedly express their regret for the horrible mistake, including one of the lead pilots, who himself was of Czech descent. But years later, some survivors of the Prague bombing would maintain that the skies had been fairly clear that day, and would question whether the bombing had really been unintentional. And I'm starting to freak out because my dad was in the 398th bombing squadron. He flew a B-17 and he is of Czech descent. But why would the U.S. bomb a friendly capital? I don't know. Why did the U.S. bomb Dresden? After all, many believe the bombing by the U.S. of Dresden is a war crime. Dresden had no real significance when it came to military strategy. However, it was a cultural landmark. Maybe that culture was the real U.S. target as the indiscriminate attacks were also completely disproportionate even if the city was mil had, had even when the city had no military significance whatsoever so why would the u.s bomb prague the answer probably lies in the question why did the u.s bomb dresden finally this week in rotten history on february 15th 1996 28 years ago this week at the xi chung launch center in china a long march 3b rocket let, lifted off from the pad on its very first flight. It was carrying an American telecommunications satellite, the $85 million Intelsat 708 intended for commercial use. So Intelsat doesn't stand for intelligence gathering satellite, or is commercial use the new government jargon for gathering intelligence? Just as the big rocket cleared the launch tower, it tilted to one side and veered off course, flying horizontally a few miles and then crashing with a tremendous explosion close to a populated village. China officially acknowledged a death toll of six, but some unofficial sources reported that hundreds of people on the ground were killed, though estimates varied widely. And Chinese experts noted that villages near the rocket center were routinely evacuated before any launch. 
The Intelsat disaster was among the worst of many such mishaps in China's commercial space program, which for years has offered lower prices than Western corporate con customers can get elsewhere. The market apparently decided that cheaper and more likely to blow up Chinese rockets were a better investment than expensive ra rockets that actually do the job of putting satellites in orbit. The satellite launch complexes of the United States, Europe, Japan, and India are located on the seacoast so that any exploding rockets fall into the ocean, but all four of China's launch centers are located deep in the country's interior. The rockets fly over populated areas for hundreds of miles, sometimes causing accidents that kill people on the ground, not only by explosions, but by the release of large amounts of poisonous rocket fuel into agricultural areas. Now that's rotten history and apparently the rotten current way of life and death in China. And this is Hell Will, who is our upcoming guest on tomorrow's show. And Jeff Dorch is doing a moment of truth. What's he talking about? Uh, Jeff looks for the magic Jenga block to remove to to remove to send fascism crashing down. Okay. And uh, he's still playing Jenga. I guess. <laughs> okay. S stuck in the past. Yeah, you gotta uh, move on to Stratego. Oh man, <laughs> I haven't played that in decades. <laughs> Um, returning to This Is Hell, Jake Johnson is author of the new book, Aid State, Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism, and the Battle to Control Haiti. Jake is Senior Research Associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And then we have uh, Jacob Kang Brown on the uh, Vera Institute of Justice report, People on Electric Monitoring. That's a quite a snappy title, isn't it? Sure is. Really makes sense. It sounds like a real page turn. <laughs> yeah. So thanks to Will Ippen for producing. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host. Oh, yeah, I said that we had made a big booking for next week. Next week on our show on Tuesday, we are going to have the author, the writer, Corey Doctorow on. He's got a new novel out called Bezeled. And we are actually going to be getting an autographed copy of that book that we are going to be giving away in, in July, on July 20th, during our anniversary and our This Is Hell listener appreciation and anniversary party and art show opening that is happening again on July 20th. So we're going to have a copy of that book. But Corey's going to be on the show to talk about his new article at Financial Times. You don't have to have a subscription for this one either. You can find it for free. It's called the... It's called... And shitification is coming for absolutely everything. The term describes the slow decay of online platforms such as Facebook. But what if we've entered the Enshito scene? <laughs> like it. You've got to read this article. It's, it's really great. Uh, so there is office hours this week. The cell office hours are happening this Wednesday, as they do nearly every Wednesday. And they always happen at the bar downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. And oddly, on Wednesday, it will start warming up slightly right around 6 p.m. The time office hours begin, despite being after sundown. So look for me out back, as always, in the beer garden around the fire pit. That's This Is Hell Office Hours. This and every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>